0: listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White.
1: Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White and joining us today on a special episode at the Manufactured Summit is uh, Paul Wellner from Deloitte. Uh, Welcome to The Cooler Ring, Paul. Yeah,
2: Glad to be here. Paul is, uh, I guess at this point, a familiar voice if we have them uh, on The the Cooler Ring. So it's great to have you back. And Paul, I was really excited uh, about the uh, the study that you released uh, here at Maypie yesterday um, around smart factory adoption. I just I wonder if we could just start with you telling us a few of the key findings from the study, and then we can maybe dive into it a little bit further.
3: Perfect. Yeah, we were excited to release the study yesterday as well, and the collaboration with Maypie that we've done over the last six months in, uh, in this focus on smart manufacturing has really been... Exciting and it's really been insightful for us. Uh, We had over 600 uh, manufacturers uh, Surveyed as well as interviewed as part of our study and we really kind of came out with some you know some some key findings, you know 50% of the organizations are investigating and or investing in things around smart factories these days and 50% are kind of on the sidelines and watching but of those companies that are investing and investing early you know, we call them trailblazers. Those are the ones that are really starting to see starting to see benefits that are uh, pretty significant compared to the, you know, the rest of the group that that aren't doing as much with smart factory initiatives. Uh,
2: I, I, I want to dive into that trailblazer bit um, further because you could tell when you released a study uh, yesterday, uh, that really got the room talking. I, a lot of the questions that came to you, even after the presentation, was just around kind of
3: people, you could tell, trying to see how they fit. Yeah, uh, trying trying to
1: self assess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much
3: so. A lot uh, yeah. of the conversations were around that. And, you know, I think the Trailblazers, you know, one of the characteristics would be they're really kind of the first to innovate. Uh, they're not uh, necessarily a fast follower, but they are definitely, you know, someone who's the first to innovate. And they do that in, you know, kind of with one technology or with many technologies. They do that kind of integrating across technologies. We see them kind of embracing more and more use cases, uh, you know, inside of their smart factories. Of the... You know, we we surveyed, uh, as I said, the respondents, and there were 12 use cases that we focused on to see if we could get a sense of whether Trailblazers were, you know, adopting certain technologies faster than others. And, you know, in the case of the kind of the top six use cases, we saw the Trailblazers definitely adopting technologies more quickly than, you know, kind of the rest of the group. Uh, We also saw from an investment standpoint, they're investing at basically twice the rate uh, you know, kind of assuming flat budgets for factories and manufacturing type investments, they're investing at twice the rate of the kind of the the, the rest of the group as it relates to kind of smart technology. So I think that was another insight. Um, there are also ones that as they organize themselves to do smart factory initiatives, they're much more a kind of combination of top down and bottom up. They're not the bottom up grassroots efforts that are kind of one cell, one manufacturing line, one plant at a time. They are some of that to test out technologies, but they're absolutely a top-down CEO, CTO, CFO-driven approach to kind of smart because the organization gets it, they see the benefits, and they see the long-term path to uh, becoming a more effective manufacturing organization with a smart, connected supply chain.
2: I thought that came across loud and clear. You could tell that the organizations that were being identified as trailblazers, uh, just the importance they placed on it, based upon who they put around the table. Um, yeah,
1: the very fact that the C suite is is at the table and considering the digital transformation, smart factory implementation, you know, it just tells you that that you know it is an important initiative across the whole org.
3: Well, and they know they know it's important. The CEO knows it's important because they see the connectedness of it as well. They see the ability to connect to the customer side of things as well as to the supplier side of things inside of a smart factory and a smart organization.
2: You know, when you start talking about the trailblazers being the first to innovate, uh, and now they're, they're really starting to see some traction and get some results, it leads me to the, you know, I, I don't think we always think of uh, industrial manufacturers being the first to do anything frankly, um, they would, I think, sometimes look in the mirror and say they ought to be faster in a wide range of their operations and businesses. So I'm just curious, it seems like if they do struggle to get started, uh, has the study identified any suggestions for how, what are the first next steps for those ones who maybe haven't uh, gotten started with Smart factory technology at this point.
3: Well, I, you know there there are uh, certain things that we see people using a lot of, and they might be used in the office and not in the factory. And there are technologies that you can start small with, where you might have experience in your organization already with, you know, the cloud or already with kind of analytics that gets applied to various different use cases. But there are definitely ways to start small. And you know, we, we, we don't think you should do a, a big bang effort. We did not see the study kind of supporting people doing a big bang effort of trying to do a many, many things at once inside of a factor. We saw kind of starting small as a, as a key element. Uh, building a foundation of you know, successes that enable you to then grow that, uh, that base of kind of starting small into something larger. And then, you know, the thing that we've seen uh, people really focus on is the the talent and the, the people associated with it. These strategies, you know, will fail if the people are not bought in and not engaged, you know, kind of across the board. So it's a combination of kind of the right technology and the right strategy to go implement. You know, again, the starting small and scaling, but also having the right people and the right capabilities around the table.
2: Paul, I really thank you for uh, just briefly introducing the study uh, to our listeners today. Uh, I, I, I'm sure they can in some way contact Deloitte if uh, our, our listeners want to uh, to learn more uh, about your, your, your work in this space. It's fascinating. I will say this, uh, completely uh, uh, tangential point is in addition to uh, the presentation and the report yesterday. Uh, probably the biggest uh, talk of the town at the conference were those uh, peanut butter cups that were at the Deloitte booth uh, yesterday. So I don't know. I was baking was, those most I, of the was, morning. I yeah. did not know to which extent you were responsible for that. So I just wanted to highlight that and uh, thank you on behalf of conference attendees uh, everywhere because
1: it, uh, <laughs> it, even Stephen brought it up in
2: our it, conversation. It's been repeated yeah. Uh, often. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Paul. For Thank it. you.
0: Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account-based marketing can help give your marketing strategy the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals, and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bitly ABM. That's bitly ABM.
1: Coming to you from the Manufactured Summit in Chicago, Illinois. And joining us right now, we have Dr. Gary Bertolini. And Dr. Bertolini is the Dean of the Purdue Polytechnic Institute. Welcome to The Cooler Ring.
4: Thank you very much.
2: You know, I I found it uh, great when you said, look, uh, let's sum it up. You're just on a mission to basically reinvent, change um, uh, education and how we uh, educate. Uh, and you just happened to get to be a dean you know, as, as your side job, almost.
4: Yeah, that's actually very true. Um, I don't know what it is about me. I've been, I have been—I think I've been pre-wired to do this. I actually remember being in high school and sitting in a study hall writing down what I didn't like about high school and how I should change it. <laughs> I'm dead serious, okay? Uh, because I hated school, all right? I'm, I think I'm a pretty creative person and I was just too constrained, okay? When I got to college, I got into a technical discipline, and I really did well, and I loved it, because I had the freedom to, you know, and I had an outlet for my creativity, right? And um, I, I kinda got into this role where I liked education, I love learning, I love reading, and I just kept on getting more education, and, you know, so I ended up at Purdue University, Uh, serving as a dean, but um, something transformational happened to me um, just recently, actually, when uh, President Daniels at Purdue became the president about eight years ago. um, I had some ideas about what we should be doing both in K through 12 and higher education. And President Daniels, if you don't know, was the governor of Indiana, and he has and had no academic background, and so I think I caught him off guard, and he thought it was a good idea, and he allowed me to start experimenting. But uh, at the end of the day, I think I'm um, an evangelist for changing education in the nation.
2: Let's talk about that change, the change that you want to see, the change that you feel is required. How How would you begin to describe that?
4: I'd begin to describe it by um, compare it with the automobile that you drive today with the Model T. Um, And not just, well, I mean, think all the features that you have, okay, and all the things you can do with a modern automobile. Um, Most automobiles are connected to the internet, right, if you have a recent model. Um, There are sensors that'll tell you if your tires are low. The sophistication of that technology, of that um, piece of technology, is much greater than the Model T was. Here's the key. Our education system was set up for the Model T. (laughs) The the K-12 system and the higher education system, as you see it today, is much closer reflecting the Model T than it does the modern automobile. And that's the best way of of thinking about it. And so um, you do not get out of your car and get in the front and use a crank to start the engine, right? So why do we stand up and lecture? Why are we limited to three credit hour courses? All right. Why do we have disciplines? Okay. Uh, why do we have tenure? I mean, you can go right down the line. Why is only 12 years of education enough? As I said earlier in my presentation, I asked the question, so what was the name of the prophet and the name of the mountain um, where the stone tablet came from that said that a high school education is all you need? That actually was done back in the early 1900s. Now, you might claim, well, we still need 12 years, and that's kind of what we're stuck with. But if we do differently what we do in that 12 years, we actually can probably get by with 12 years. But people make assumptions about, you know, things that you've done. You, you both went through high school and maybe some higher ed, right? And, you know, you, you just think that that's just the way the world is. Well, it's because you don't have a long enough perspective, and you don't study education, and so you just think, well, that's the way it should be. But who's to say that someone can't uh, get a high school education, and an equivalent of a high school education in nine years and move on? I mean, some of our most successful entrepreneurs, as you know, um, have no college education. All right, might be a a heretic for someone that's Mm -hmm. livelihood is, is higher ed, but I mean, who says that that's the right time period, okay? And because what we know about the science of learning now, compared to the 1900s, is to stuff everyone through the same system and to think that that's going to be good enough for the future, I just think you're dead wrong.
2: And of course, uh, I mean, even if you just work on the numbers, you know, if your life expectancy is 70 and you're spending 12 years of that you know there's a ratio there and as life expectancy now goes to over 100 or what have you well you know in some ways yes we might be getting we may be able to do more in less time but then there may be even an argument to be spending more time uh as a percentage of uh, one's life uh, or keep the percentage consistent at the very least, which would mean spending more years.
4: Yeah, and so I mean, we have a presidential candidate right now that says everyone should get a thousand dollars a month. I think it is, or whatever. Um, maybe we should only be working four days a week as a as an option, and we just pay more. Um, and and so it, it it allows more workers into the workforce if we, if everyone's afraid about you know, um, you know the machines are gonna replace all the jobs, or well, the ones remaining, we can have more people working on it because the wealth that's being created. I mean, the, the whole idea around technology and industry is we, we actually become better at doing what we're doing. Actually, if you look at it, our companies in this nation are extremely um, uh, do, doing well. I mean, they they are, their profits are higher than ever. I mean. They're not under any stress, okay? I mean, something there's a disconnect here, all right, where everyone's kind of running around talking about all these problems, yet our companies are doing fine, okay? Yeah, there's a labor shortage, and, of course, there's all, there's little pressures here and there. But overall, the companies are doing well. It's because we're much more efficient because of the technologies. And again, you know, who says a 40-hour work? Where's the stone tablet that says we work 40 hours a week? Yeah. I, I just, you know, that's what I'm talking about. You have to open up your mind that we're living in a totally different age. And and it's a transformational time that's being driven by these transformational technologies that are now starting to merge. And it's the integration of those. And part of my evangelism is to get people to wake up the next day thinking that they're in a different world. Um, And until you understand that, you really cannot contextualize all the pressures that we are having in society and some of the problems that we're having because the root cause is because of the technological transformation that's going on. And, And you can just look at historical precedent. The first industrial revolution was extremely disruptive. We had people moving from the country into the cities because that's where the jobs were, right? And then automation started, and people thought they were losing jobs. Well, some people were, but there was others that were making the machines. Someone had to make the machines, so there's there's a transfer of jobs and skills. We need a society that can react to that through its educational system. And so instead of guaranteeing jobs, why don't we guarantee education? If you lose a job, we will retrain you. And you will have a skill set that is uh, going to serve you well. The problem is if you're living to 100 and because of uh, technology changing so rapidly, you might actually have to change careers. To think you're going to stay in the same career is fallacy because those careers, in many cases, are going to go away. Unless you're at the very high end of the food chain kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the general workforce... They're literally going to have to go from one career to another, and we, as a society, have to figure out how we do that. In the past, we've always done it through the education system.
2: And you speak of uh, the requirement for teaching methods to change, uh, and as well as perhaps the the what we teach needs to change. Let's just unpack both of those.
4: So the how we teach actually is just as important um, as the subject matter. And so, you know, there's a lot of need for cybersecurity experts, right? Yeah, okay, so let's get more people in cybersecurity. But what's more important, in my opinion, is actually how we teach. The dirty dark secret in our nation is that 40% of of, um, kids that go on to college um, never finish. Can you imagine running a business where 40% of your product fails, and somehow you know we just don't um, realize that this having huge impact. There's the student debt piece because of that. Um, it's the root cause is not the 40%. It's very hard to blame the individual person. Obviously, there's stories where you can come up where someone just decided to, you know not wake up and go to class, (laughs) okay? But the fact is, is they're ill prepared. Uh, And that's our K through 12 system, which we need to work on. But the methodologies uh, have to change because the methodologies that we see mostly in education were developed back in the Model T era. And the Model T era said that, you know, if you had a high school education, you can read, write, and do a little bit of calculating. That was enough to go work for Ford or whatever, right? Um, That obviously isn't enough because the machines are much more sophisticated now and the expectations of that particular job is much higher. And so the methodologies have to change based on 120 years of research that's gone into how humans learn. And we are not maximizing that. And it's because our system keeps on preparing teachers, um, to uh, teach the way they have been taught for generations. And um, the example I give that I believe is just as serious is that if I was a medical doctor and I used bloodletting as a technique to you know, cure some disease, I'd be kicked out, right? Why is it okay for Um, teachers to take their 50 minutes, one hour, and lecture. Okay? When it's been proven, uh, there's a meta-study that was done a few years ago that looked at over 250 research uh, papers, um, and those papers are all about active learning compared with lecture, and every one of them said that active learning is better than bloodletting, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, and how, how, do, how can we keep on getting away with this, okay? So there has to be an accountability, and so what we've tried to do is we create accountability through standardized tests. The problem is, is that's not the problem. The problem is the teaching methodologies. Focus on what is happening in the classroom and less on what the score is later. Because we think that by creating some kind of test that the system will change is wrong. I mean, we, it's just not education. I mean, you do that with about anything. If, if you put some metric on, that doesn't automatically mean that the system is gonna change at the same time, right? right? Right. I mean, the car industry, I mean, if we were to hold to our fuel standards that were in the Obama administration, for example, all the internal combustion engine companies decided they were going to make their internal combustion engines more efficient. Did any one of them say, "Now we're going to go all electric"? They would have solved the problem, right? Right? You see what yes, I'm saying? Exactly. Okay. It's because we live within you know what we know. The construct of that. And, yeah. Yes, and that's why you have to have a transformational mindset. It's not incremental. It's too late to do incremental.
1: I think one of the one of the other interesting things that uh, that you spoke about is, and you teach and are Dean at a, at a highly technical institution, you know, that, uh, obviously very, um, you know, digitally savvy. Um, but you also have, uh, worked to bring more liberal arts curriculum yeah. into, uh, into what uh, these yes. students are
4: studying. Yeah. Uh,
1: so tell us about why you're doing that.
4: Yeah. I, I think the, the most important thing we're doing actually is that, <laughs> I mean, um, Students have shown they can survive lecture. I don't really want to um, act like I'm backing off on what I said earlier, but I think the integration of liberal liberal arts, especially in the technical disciplines, is an absolute. We cannot continue to graduate um, students, especially in the technical disciplines, that do not have a bigger view of the world. And so we've partnered with our College of Liberal Arts and all of our students are required to take something that's called the cornerstone certificate, which is a 15 credit hour sequence of courses. Purdue is a very large university. Many liberal arts courses at the 100 and you know, lower levels are taught by graduate students. At Purdue, this cornerstone is taught by faculty. These are experts in their field. The first two classes that our students take are in classic literature, and that's where they learn about critical thinking and creativity because they also have a big writing element. They have to write short stories around certain themes. I mean, one of the assignments, which I thought was brilliant, is um, the students had to read Frankenstein, the classic book, and um, the assignment was to write a short story as if you're, you know, writing Frankenstein today. And one of our students, out of the 900 students at Purdue University that were taking the cornerstone, one of our technical students won the writing contest because she was able to mold her understanding and what she learned about uh, good writing. And and she created a character of Frankenstein that was based on artificial intelligence. And the story ended with you not knowing who the... Uh, the real Frankenstein was. Was it the one that was actually made out of a, partly out of a human or was it the robot? You see what I mean? It was a great storyline and she won the contest, okay? And uh, it's like, that's that's what we need to give our students more of and you see this reflected all the time in our society right now because the technology is so sophisticated and it's very hard to predict where a technology is gonna impact society that we need to change how we do things. So when a software company releases a software or a new version, if they do not take a lot of time to study what the possible impacts are, we need to start holding them accountable. Better yet, is they need to hold themselves accountable, right, and that what they need to do. And so, you know, we have safety standards for automobiles. We really don't have anything like that in our software industry. You can just, you can create an app, and no one looks at it, okay? If it's on Apple, they'll look at it, and if they can make money, maybe they'll, they'll publish it, right? But they're not looking at it like the possible consequences, and unintended consequences. And we need to have technologists that think that way that take time to reflect deeply about how the human actually uses it. So one of the other things um, we teach design thinking. Every one of our students learn design thinking. And and most of the students get exposed to um, the anthropology department because this is about you knowing about humans and the study of humans. And so if you don't know anything about humans and how they react to different technologies, you cannot even um, surmise what the possible consequences are. And that's where the liberal arts come in. It's a much deepening of their understanding. So it's not just about them being more creative, which we want them to be. We want these uh, technologists to be deep thinkers, because that's the ones that are really going to help lead us out of some of the challenges that we have going forward.
2: It is interesting to consider the just incredibly um, uh, diverse impacts of technologies and how fast it can happen. I mean, we can look at... uh Everything well, the, you know. You, you, I think you can make an argument that without Twitter, if we, you, know, you may have a different precedent. Yeah, obviously. yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, how how much clearer an example could you have of technology driving unintended consequences?
4: Oh yeah. Well, the the other thing is the cybersecurity. The the, the new uh, weapon of mass destruction is cybersecurity, and the problem with this one is is we cannot see it. Okay. Most citizens don't ever see it, right? It's all going on in the background. If you own a company and you're being attacked, you you know it. A lot of your workforce don't because you don't necessarily change, you know. You're
2: not looking to publicize it. Yeah, exactly,
4: to, right. And so there's this veil of secrecy that goes over it on top of it, which makes it worse. And, uh, we, you know, that's a, just one small example where we really need to get ahead of that.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us for this brief uh, cooler Ring segment. I really enjoyed uh, the chat and a chance to kind of go a little deeper on uh, on your talk. I really appreciate having you on the show. Well, Thanks thank, so
4: much. Thank you for letting me share my ideas, and we appreciate it.
1: Thank you.
0: slash sample ABM
1: coolering coming to you from the manufactured summit in Chicago Illinois joining us on this episode is Raj Batra the president of digital industries at Siemens USA welcome to the coolering Raj thank you good to be here
2: really great to be chatting with you today Raj I uh, just really enjoyed your, your presentation at the conference today I thought that you um, had a very uh, uh, concise and easy to digest, frankly, uh, way of uh, explaining uh, digital transformation, and smart manufacturing, and where um, uh, where it's going, but also how to think about it. Uh, I wonder if you might just take our listeners through a bit of a just a highlight or a brief uh, few minutes fly through or flyby of your of your talk. Just give us some context.
5: So, you know, we talked today about jumpstarting the the, the digital evolution in U.S. manufacturing, and that, that's really critical because as manufacturing becomes more relevant stateside, you know, and people want mass-customized goods, they want it now. They don't want to wait for the last generation of products on ships to, to uh, you know, because consumer preferences are changing very rapidly. So, you know, if you're waiting 18 or 24 months to get your product, and designs have changed, preferences have changed. You know, you see that a lot in the apparel industry. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's just not uh, the way the consumer is moving. So this mass customization in every part of our business requires that you're manufacturing in the locality that you're in. I mean, it's very important. And of course, we have a you know political environment right now where tariffs are in play and there's retaliatory tariffs. And so uh, that that probably. Uh, drove a different level of fear with large enterprise corporations about, you know, is it just in vogue to really go to a low-cost country and manufacture for being a low-cost country? So this all moved into my talk, which was about, you know, how do we up the game in in manufacturing here in the country? Better quality, more customization, more flexibility, um, and, and what does it take to do that? So jump-starting digital evolution, in my view, is really using digital manufacturing practices to get an edge, to be able to design, to simulate, to do things virtually before you do things physically. And there's a lot of work and detail that can be worked out when you virtualize manufacturing processes, not just the design of a product, but also virtualizing how your manufacturing environment's going to be laid out, and then virtualizing how the manufacturing environment performs. So this is all being done before you physically go to put robots on a line, or before you go physically do things in a, in a manufacturing environment. And then there are tremendous gains. You know, we, we today showed a, a number of use cases uh, in a number of videos and examples of uh, companies that um, are do it, doing it from you know, the paint industry, uh, where they can make any variation of any product to uh, companies that are entering into the automobile industry, which is a very capital-intensive business. and uh, But using digitalization capability, they, they saw that they can get a first-mover advantage, better margins, better prices, and uh, a better quality product.
2: Yeah, the case studies were incredibly powerful. Um, one Southeast Asian car manufacturer who just um, I think stood up their entire production facility in, what was it, 20, 21 months today?
5: I... Yeah, so, so they cut the development time in half um, and can produce any buildable combination of that product digitally. Um, so no line is purpose built just for one car, you know, any color, any variant. Uh, so cut the time in half, cut the engineering time in half. And, you know, for them, time to market becomes important. So if you have a great product and you have great innovation around your product and you can deliver it, uh, you're going to capitalize on better margins, a first-mover advantage, uh, and, and that is going to disrupt somebody else that's in the industry. They can't do it that fast.
1: Exactly. And, and I, I found the uh, the stat that you had shared uh, around the uh, deluxe paint factory in uh, Australia, I believe yes. it was. Yes, yeah. Uh, 99.9999% quality. Yeah. Know, to, yeah. Zero, almost zero defects, yeah. basically.
5: Yeah, and, and you know, and I think that that was Dulux, so we can publicly talk about the names here. But you know, Dulux used to build a, a you know, produce a big batch of paint, and that paint was dispensed. And today, they've cut that batch in, you know, in one fiftieth of its proportion, so they can produce any color, any variant, uh, any combination. You can imagine how many pigments of colors there are when people order paint for their interior, exterior environments, and so they they may not have to have a purpose built line for this. They can use the same line with a lot of advancements in technology and modeling and simulation to, uh, you know, really make the manufacturing environment much more efficient.
2: I uh, I wonder if we might just talk about what might be standing in the way or what are some of the barriers, I guess, to embracing uh, this? Because, I mean, we're talking about use cases that... Uh, To be fair, uh, Southeast Asia and Australia, Australia, Um, uh, arguably a lot of similarities maybe between Australia's uh, economy and more North American context, uh, to be fair as well. So I guess let's talk about it just uh, as as we conclude our time uh, together just um, um, around uh, kind of the U.S. manufacturing specifically and kind of that approach uh, and what is required, uh, maybe how they ought to be thinking about it.
5: Yeah. So, you, you know, I, I think we have a unique construct in U.S. manufacturing in that we're not, we don't put up a lot of green fields of anything, right? So I, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen at all, but, you know, we have Teslas, we have good examples of companies that have put up chemical plants, but it's just not the mainstream of what we do. And, and, and you know, part of that, I, I would say, is manufacturing historically hasn't really been strategic to the enterprise in the U.S. So if you were a public company CEO and you were thinking about manufacturing goods, I mean, it was always in your the back of your mind to, to find a low-cost environment to do it. You know, and that was the metric of success in manufacturing. You know, and we lost, in my view, a number of years in developments and innovations on the factory floor to be able to do that. Um, you know, 2008, uh, in, in the crisis, put us in a position where, you know, even in the auto industry, we were building a lot of trucks, and, and we just couldn't repurpose fast enough to small fuel-efficient vehicles. And, uh, you know, it created a big, big under-absorption uh, factor inside of, of, of U.S. companies. So um, so I think, generationally, we lost a few, uh, you know, we lost, you know, a few decades in innovations in manufacturing, because we were moving things out to low-cost countries. and And I think today, fast-forward to today, manufacturing has become a competitive weapon in the environment. So that means if you can design your product the right way and manufacture it with high efficiency, which means when you control your design and you link your manufacturing process to that design, uh, and you do this all on a digital backbone, that means you can control the products, you can change variations, you can decide on what the ergonomics of the factory are going to look like. I mean, how do you position things? Um, You know, you can do that by trial and error. That's a very expensive, painful procedure. So today, technology lets us do that, one. I, and I would say, you know, companies are, reali- companies are realizing the quest to be more profitable, that they have to manufacture with great efficiency, you know, high quality rates, and mass customizations in play. People want things now. I mean, think, you know, take a look at the apparel industry. I mean, I, I, I watch my son uh, order a pair of Nike shoes, and uh, he, he just didn't order what was in Foot Locker. He ordered what he wanted to order. He went online and customized it, and had something embroidered on the back, and that was going to be delivered to him in a few weeks.
2: And you know, his taste might change between now and the exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah,
5: yeah. We, we, which they probably will. You know, so so he has to reorder. Yeah. But uh, but but that just shows you in something very simple. You know, in a consumer environment, how how the preferences are changing so fast and to be able to respond to that and adapt to it you have to have capability of of personalizing and mass customizing and the only way to do that is more advanced technology in the manufacturing floor Uh, and and that's 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 certainly apparel Uh, cars automobiles uh, you know when you order certain cars you you know it's now a, a, a set of millions of buildable combinations that you order you know you don't just take what's off the lot and that's that's changing with this next generation that, that, that buys. Uh, so, so I think all of these, and then the current political administration, I mean, there's a, you know, the corporate tax rate cut, there's a lot more impetus to manufacture stateside. And, and to do that, we want to manufacture high value, high technology goods. And I think those environments really require substantial investments and advancements in manufacturing. And we have to catch up in the few decades that we lost.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to me. I think I may have mentioned this just before we hit record on 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 this uh, brief segment. But I was just, you know, just the I guess the thought experiment that keeps going on in my head is, uh, can can they move fast enough? Can they, uh, in some way the the cautious um, uh, build as you go, see some return, yeah. uh, invest more, et cetera? Can that compete with? Uh, those markets that are more greenfield in yeah. nature, but um, uh, there's a lot of uh, that, that's a certainly a significant headwind. But uh, as you mentioned, um, there's a lot of pressure, uh, conversely, to manufacture goods where they're consumed, etc. Yeah,
5: so. yeah, and you know, just the other big factor that I think you know we shouldn't underestimate how important the workforce is in adopting all this and making it happen. So we have, we, you know, we have a aging asset base. We have an aging population. We have you know, I don't know, what's the stat that I talked about today? 10,000 boomers that are eligible for retirement every day. And, you know, we're going to have a few million people that leave the workforce that had tribal knowledge that put it all together. And the next gen coming in may not need all that tribal knowledge because they do things a bit differently. You know, for them, it's a very innate to use digital technologies. And they haven't known a world without an iPhone or the internet or, you know, virtual design. So, so all of that is gonna, uh, so, so people always ask me, are, are you really worried that you have, you know, this workforce leaving? And I said, well, I'm not really worried because I think, you know, what you're gonna get is you're gonna get a next generation of worker that um, really is gonna want to do things differently, much more efficient using technology, you know, as they do in their everyday life. And uh, they probably won't adopt 30-year-old practices that, 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 that were used. So that in itself could really spur manufacturing uh, much faster uh, here, here in the country. And uh, uh, you're going to find companies that uh, start with a very strong strategic direction because they know what the art of the possible is. They know that you know, if, if they benchmarked and if they looked at like facilities that were best in class and how they digitalized, end to end, um, and then they saw the gains out of it. Then you start working backwards to integrate that into your framework, right? And so you'll find companies, and they may not be all the classic ones, they may be smaller ones that, that come out and, and start dominating in, in goods, and, and, and you, know, you see it every day, right? You see it in the consumer environment every day. I mean, look at all the disruptions you've seen. You know, smart speakers, wireless speakers. I mean, you know, your classic speaker manufacturer somehow just got disrupted. You know, you know, you don't see the classic guys selling wired speakers anymore. And they just weren't fast enough to adopt their strong position into uh, what the consumers wanted now. And uh, and, and that, that's just a And you see it in the consumer environment very rampantly, and it's finding its way into the manufacturing environment very quickly. And it's all about margins. You know, companies want to make more money. They want to capitalize on their IP. They want to capitalize on getting their goods to market faster. So I, I think these are all the dynamics, in my view, that are supporting more advancements in digitalization.
1: It's also obviously driving a significant increase in the requirement for software developers, right. CX, UX designers, kind of bringing those things together with hardware products that previously required no software. Right. You know, and it's changing the, the work environment uh, as well as uh, you know, the, the services that we end up buying.
5: Yeah, you know, the value contribution of software and development of products has grown exponentially over the past decade. So, um, you know, when we think about designing plants and, and designing products and using digital tools to do it and using virtualization, um, it's, you know, people couldn't have imagined a decade ago what value software would play in making that happen. And, uh, and today, you know, you see it, it's rampant everywhere. And now, you know, you can go into the cloud, you can do a lot of data analytics in the cloud. You can you know, analyze assets on the floor. You can look at predictive behaviors, when something's going to fail. Um, and you, know, you can really optimize processes at another level without a lot of manual intervention. And I think these are all going to manifest themselves now. They're, they're, they're coming into play. And, uh, and, and they'll drive you know, very substantial productivity gains in manufacturing in the US.
2: I think uh, I I think we should end the episode there. It just seems like a you know frankly you can hear enough doom and gloom sometimes about skill shortages and things of that nature. And I I like Raj's, uh manufacturing optimism Renaissance approach. And yeah, optimism, yes. uh, so uh, thank you for sharing that.
5: Thank you. It's good to be here. A pleasure. Thanks, Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the coolering. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the Coolering.